Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, and it's your space traveling, wild and wacky wizard, Holden McNeely. And I'm your best friend, Red the Doom and Bruiser. Everybody <laughs> thinks that I'm kind of See, a loser. See, I thought you were going to be Red Woody, because like, I was being Buzz Lightyear, but I guess you're going to be throw a complete Bruiser. curveball and, and be Randy Newman in this Sometimes scenario. Sometimes it feels bad I to be do this. a Bruiser in your <laughs> solitary so leaving. Tired. But then your podcast co-host has got your back. <laughs> You know, this is perfect because this is such an odd couple film, as we'll get into <laughs> later. But also, Jake, I feel like, you know, we're the, the odd couple, right? I'm like this sexy stud that all the ladies love and no one can get enough of. And then you're like this, like, all sad, pathetic, you know, all the ladies throw up when they see you and everything. And then, they take, then I take them home and they realize that I'm just a fuck stallion. Yeah, we're both just- fucking them all. <laughs> we're both having crazy sex, dude. I love this. I love this movie. Nothing I like better than slam. <laughs> Slamming some brewskis, finding a piece of strange, and then making sure we connect on an emotional level because <laughs> physical affection is a very deep trust issue for me. Hell yeah, Porky's nine. Um, <laughs> is the film we're covering today, and that is not the case. We are going to talk about Toy Story, and in order to talk about Toy Story, we also have to talk about something I've been infinitely curious about, and I'm so glad to cover. I I did not talk to you about this before, but we will be talking about the um, evolution or the beginnings of Pixar as well. I mean, you can't not. You it's, can't not. Honestly, the the arc of Pixar is kind of this insane thing that Toy Story wasn't just the, like, oh, I think we should make a movie with computers. It is the work of decades of computer scientists, like, just seeing just a, a shitty 8-bit computer, like a eh, 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 computer, and, like, seeing it in its monotone, monocolor glory and just being like, yeah, I bet. I bet someday you can make a movie with this. Mm-hmm. We, you can't yet, but right. the exact second you can, we're going to be the fuckers to do it. Right. And uh, what's really wild to me too is that you know, Toy Story really shouldn't have been as good as it was, and we'll get into kind of why that that is, like how hard it is to actually make a good big, you know kids for kids and for adults just brilliant kind of thing mm. it really should have just been this kind of weird experimental clunker right in a weird in a way to just be like look yeah exactly kind of what you were but like like this is how a movie c- could be made in cg you know what i mean and instead it became this uh, uh, just classic fantastic disney film i feel i've mentioned this a lot of times and i'm sorry for repeating myself uh if you're a longtime listener, this is punishment for you. Uh, <laughs> new listeners, get ready for this hot take. Uh, the emergence of computer graphics in the 80s and 90s really was exciting and new because it was 
a genuinely original way of kind of representing the world. It was a brand new form of creativity. And when I was a kid, I would rent like VHSs that it would just just short films, music videos. It would just be a collection of computer animated stuff. And I would just devour it because it was so fascinating the way that they created these three dimensional objects and colors and perspectives that you could never even achieve before Mm -hmm. and um studying the history of pixar it finally like kind of keyed in that it wasn't an accident it took a lot of hard work a lot and a lot of innovation just to get to the sphere point of things from from the perspective actually seeing the movie after i just said that you know it should have been this weird kind of testing ground and ended up being this great film like seeing the final product and going from there backwards you would think that it was just like oh they just had these geniuses and they wrote this amazing they probably had this amazing story ready to go for for a decade and you know they you know uh they they immediately got this great cast and it must it just sounded like it was probably just a bunch of people and this really smooth ride but no it was like a, so much back and forth so much contention so much weird it, it, this story gives you a good eye into like weird studio politics and mm. weird like exec politics because there is literally there's an executive in this story that is trying to stop this film at all costs because of just personal grievances <laughs> with with the other exe- Disney executive involved we'll get into that as well um um, and, you know, for me personally, let's talk about the personal a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've already said I love this movie. It is almost like Jurassic Park in the sense that, you know, we ended up getting it on VHS. And I saw it many, many times. I was trying to figure out when this came out for me. It came out in 95, Five. right? Which means I was 13. Mm-hmm. Eighth grade in middle school, I believe. Maybe freshman high school. But either way, it's it. Um, what I love so much about it is... For me, I had such a contentious relationship with uh, Disney, I think, as a child, because for some reason when I was a kid, I did not like musicals, mm. where, which is hilarious, which is funny to me now because I like love musicals now, but I didn't want to see, I hated that every Disney movie was a musical. I love the animation. I love the stories, but I hated the, just the aspect of it. That there had, they had to break out into songs, you know, mm-hmm. and Toy Story came along and I was like, finally a fucking non-musical Disney film, like Sword in the Stone, you know, mm-hmm. Sword in the Stone had Mad Mad and Mim in it, but that was about it. You know, it was mostly, uh, mostly about, um, being like a straight film without musical numbers in it. And I love Toy Story for that and just immediately just became obsessed with it. It was definitely a movie that I could have probably given you a full play-by-play of every moment in the film, mm-hmm. like back around, you know, when it came out on VHS. Like, I just knew that movie. And that movie is by the fucking book. As, we, as we'll find out later, they studied, uh, what's his name, Robert McKee? Oh, Okay. Yeah, did you research? Did you? See I didn't that? catch that part. But they were they they literally went to one of his uh, seminars Great. to write the script of this movie. But uh, the, I mean, personally for me, that age around like twelve, thirteen, uh, four, that eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen is a very important time in a at very least a wealthy suburban kid's life. Because it's when you're finally like kind of uh, being told you have to distance yourself from your toys. Yeah. That it's a kind of a growing up point where like you're, you know, bringing an action figure to a social event is no longer an acceptable thing. Yes. Um, And the way that the movie actually really did capture a very honest portrayal of like a young boy's relationship to his toys and then kind of the clever part imagining that that relationship is reciprocated was uh, very clever. Even And... The fact is, is that they had to be toys because the graphics at the time 
those like shiny flat surfaces were basically the only thing they could realistically portray yet. Uh huh. Totally. So they were able to, you know, I, I besides, and some of the fabrics even in the film are actually scanned in like cloth for mm-hmm. his curtains and stuff. But yeah, the main characters of the story could be these kind of shiny plastic things, which is plastic is exactly the definition of what CG looked like mm-hmm. back when it first came out. So I was, wh- I was sh- I, watching the, I rewatched the movie and I was like amazed at how well it held up. Cause mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, you watch something like Steamboat Willie and uh-huh. the old animation is like very crude compared to modern animation. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Toy Story, I was like, no, the characters are acting well. The action flows. Like, uh-huh. this is really good. The only time it falls apart is when humans and Sid's dog is on, on screen. <laughs> and it just immediately just becomes jarbled PS2, like, creepiness. <laughs> yeah, totally. So let's get all the way back to the very beginnings. And that would be... It's the 1970s. 1970s. Everyone is doing cocaine. And knitting, wearing roller sticks, skates, and blowing each other, and being in pornography films. And AIDS is not a thing. Life, and you look back at your life and all the people you killed and all the thrills that you got. And then you realize that the barrel of the gun is pointing Oh, no. At oh, no. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. You weren't in Vietnam. Uh, well, I can't. Where am I? You were never in Vietnam. That never happened to you. you. Oh, my. God, Jake, I swear to God, I was I was there and there was a Jake, there was a machine. <laughs> Jake, there was a machine, and it said had the words way, way back. Hold it, no, it. hold Jake, it, hold I it. Swear it's to okay. God. This is like Shh. Freddy's new nightmare. Shh. There's no such thing as the way, way back machine. <sighs> There's no such thing. It's a bit. It's a bit we did. Uh, so anyways, in 1974, a man named Alexander Shore founded an animation studio called the Computer Graphics Lab in the hopes to create the first computer animated film. So from the very beginning, even with um, this guy, he's trying to make a, a full-on feature. Uh, and so in order to do that, um, he, this millionaire who had a great love for Disney films, oddly enough, th- there's no Disney connection at this point besides that. He, uh, he wants to make a, a a CGI film, and so he's already known for founding the New York Institute of Technology, which is an independent nonprofit research organiz- uh, university, rather, founded in 1955, um, and it's uh, the location of the CGL. Um, it was initially founded to create a feature film named The Works. Uh, this uh, name was inspired by the meaning of the word robot, which is derived from robata, a Slavic word for work. So this is the very first little thing. They're going to make this movie called The Works about a robot, about a malfunctioning computer actually called The Works that accidentally initiates a final world war, then goes to Earth to repopulate it with robots. It was to be 90 minutes, but um, they only got... 10 minutes of it produced before the project was abandoned. But members of this team that worked on the works for Alexander Shore at the Computer Graphics Lab, when I said CGL, by the way, that was Computer Graphics Lab, um, they uh, end up being uh, future Pixar president and co-founder Ed Catmull, Pixar co-founder and Microsoft Graphics fellow Alvy Ray Smith, Pixar co-founder Ralph Guggenheim as well, uh, uh, and uh, Shoresman an estimated $15 million on the CGL, putting the NY, the New York Institute of Technology, rather, into financial trouble. The, it kind of it kind of fucked them up what they did. I mean, they, they were this is, this is the recurring theme, is that uh, all these forward-thinking geniuses Definitely understand that computer-created imagery is the future... 
but just the raw financial, physical limitations of the technology of the time just is completely uh, uh, just a wall that they can't get over. Edwin Catmull, uh, as part of that group, uh, did a revolutionary film that was just literally his own hand. Uh, <laughs> I think it's actually called A Computer Animated Hand is the name of the film. Huh. I feel uh, like I may have seen that, Jake. Uh, it that's, was actually, that's ringing a bell. It was used as imagery in uh, the movie Future World, which was kind of the mm. sequel to Westworld. Uh, I watched it. It is just footage of them like inputting the coordinates of his own hand into a computer and then animating it. Then they show a face. Uh, and what you have to understand is this is the frontier. This is stuff that no one had even tried to think about. When you uh, even like the just the fu- foundational basics of what a 3D graphic is, vectors, textures, like polygons, this is work that was being done at the uh, New York Institute of Technology Graphics what, lab, whatever it was called? Uh, the Computer Graphics Lab, of the yeah. most generic name possible. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it was a giant money sink. Yes, a huge money sink, which a lot of these projects would be. But in, in doing so, it gathered these people together, and they started working on this stuff. And then a, a, a headhunter came along. And that headhunter would be none other than, of course, George Lucas. George Lucas is looking for six employees to come over to Lucasfilm. And so he... It, was, uh, it started with... Because, um, again, uh, he started Industrial Light and Magic, which was his kind of pet... Uh, special effects crew that he put together for Star Wars. And then when he was uh, doing the work for Empire Strikes Back, he understood that, like, the potential of computer graphics could save him a lot of work with uh, modeling. Because, you know, to do those uh, Star Wars effects with the X-Wings, you know, you had to coordinate all these uh, computer-controlled robots and camera moves and models. And it took a ton of people. And if you can just input it into a computer, maybe you could do a better, you know, it could be done cheaper. So he, uh, he commissioned a a short animation of five x-wing fighters flying in formation (laughs) and uh he saw it and was like cool how much did that cost oh way too fucking much because that much computing power in the night in the late 70s is a fucking nightmare and he just like kind of shelved that but he wanted to put together a team to kind of in you know, on his own schedule for less money, develop stuff like uh, digital audio editing and digital video editing and 3D graphics for films. Mm-hmm. And so they end up uh, being put into a group called the Graphics Group, and they did sequences for films like Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, The Genesis Effect. What, yeah, that uh, gooey, that goobly sphere that turns green. Ah, yes. And uh, I had to look this up. The Stained Glass Night in Young Sherlock Holmes in the mid '80s, and it definitely looks. It, 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 acknowledging that it's the mid '80s, it's quite impressive. It looks mm. janky as all fuck by today's standards, but, but it's, it's still it was a very the, cool concept. It and, was and, the first kind of effect of its kind of having a CG character walking around it, in the film. By it definitely watching it, it definitely looked uh, again, like I said, dated. But it definitely looked like holy shit. Nothing else was happening like that during mm. that time, like in terms of a, a look of a thing. And, and a cool concept, too, this stained glass, uh, uh, this night made of stained glass. Very cool concept, very neat little thing. Scaring the shit out of a priest. <laughs> that priest r- runs out of that church. I would, too. I would, too. Lucas 
then faces a rough divorce not too long after these projects in 1983. Um, and also, this coincides with Star Wars revenues dropping off, and the graphics groups becomes pretty aware they'd soon be uh, kicked to the curb unless they formed an independent hardware company while waiting for computers to get strong enough to create the world's first computer animated feature. So they start pumping out hardware now. Now, these guys, like, talk about ingenuity. Like, ingenuity, like not only are they trying to work with movie scripts and you know acting and character and all these kinds of things but they're also like building actual machines for people are you talking to, about the pixar image computer yes the pixar image computer which looks so cool I, I mean could you imagine having that like in your own personal um collection i mean it even has the pixar logo like as it is now written across it it mm -hmm. looks so fucking it's like badass. a mysterious black like cube yeah with like a circular divot in it um, it's a high-end computer acquisition by Steve Jobs, um, who had just been fired from Apple. So he formed his own company, Next, N-E-X-T. Uh, those are the computers that uh, they used to make Doom. Yes, yes. Holy shit. And paid $5 million of his own money to George Lucas for the tech rights and invested another $5 million into the company, to be, uh, therefore becoming a member of the board. And this is where Steve Jobs officially enters this story. I know a lot of people understand that Steve Jobs was involved. You know, um, if you haven't read the autobiography Jobs, which I have not, so uh, I wouldn't know any of I didn't know any of this until I did this research. Um, that is how he gets involved with Pixar because that is definitely one of those cool Steve Jobs factoids. You yeah. know, he did acid when he was 30. And and he uh, uh, helped. Uh, he had a big hand in Pixar, not only the, forming the company Pixar, keeping it afloat, but also this kind of weird little sort of like, um, uh, to, for lack of a better name of a, a character, like a deep throat style. Like he was just kind of off in the off to the side, you know, like kind of puppeteering little things to make Toy Story happen, and it's so cool. So Pixar was saved by Steve Jobs by. Basically spitting it out of Lucasfilm so it wouldn't be uh, cut up or liquidated. And again, the messy divorce with uh, George Lucas's ex-wife, who did edit Star Wars. And like yeah. many people attribute to actually making that film the watchable classic that it is. Um, <laughs> the watchable classic. I mean, just saying. Um, I would love to review a movie like that. It is definitely a watchable classic. Compared to what it would have been without her, is what I'm saying. Um, um, just the horniest, weird nerd boy. Just kind of... Mm -hmm. uh, just random randomized red why can't i say words jake it is so hot everybody oh it is it is a sweltering 97 degrees in new york city it right is now. a nightmare in this city and has made my mind bad that and that and marijuana jake i'm starting to realize has changed <laughs> has messed my mind up in a way that is fun uh, um but bad anyways. news about the pixar image computer yes the Pix nobody fucking bought it because it cost like a hundred thousand dollars in back then money. it was a hundred thirty five thousand dollars and it also required a thirty five thousand dollar workstation this is equal to three hundred and eighty thousand dollars today it was aimed at commercial and scientific high-end visual visualization markets such as medicine geophysics and meteorology um but still just even for on the, uh, even on a, in a commercial sense it was just mm -hmm. so intensely expensive i watched some demo videos of the pixar image computer and like they showed a thing where you know you walked into a ct scanner um in a hospital and then through the magic of the pixar computer you could see a cool 3d version of your pelvis and like that's pretty cool uh and it wasn't three hundred thousand dollars worth of cool <laughs> and it, and to and again for like a level of image fidelity that like your playstation could produce at this right, point right. yeah 
Um, so, uh, but a good offshoot, a good side effect of all of this, Jake, is that John Lasseter, who I don't believe we've mentioned his name yet. No, because he's, he's the next logical step. John Lasseter starts creating short demonstration animations on this computer, such as the Luxo, uh, such as Luxo Jr., a cute tale about two desk lamps. But before we even yeah. move... Into that, I see we take a step backwards, not in any sort of machine or anything, yeah, but yeah. just sort of a step backwards and talk about John Laster from the ground up, okay? Because yes. this is really the key player in the whole origin of Pixar into Toy Story scenario. And I will preface all of this with he's apparently also a dirty, dirty bastard. Mm-hmm. And um, no, alleged, just a, allegedly... Just a drunk old fucker who <laughs> never had any reason to like move beyond a 12-year-old psyche uh, because he was infinitely rewarded for holding on to that childhood mm. immaturity as it warped and grew darker and he was just given more money and more power until he created an entire <laughs> kingdom of bullshit in which only people like him could thrive. I love I love that you like the using the kind of your kind of normal like info spewing tone <laughs> to talk about like a man becoming evil, a man boy becoming evil. So anyways, John Laster did some dirty shit later in life which we can get into. We have to get into. We it. have to get into it's, of course. It's important to talk you about. You did the research on that cuz I'm just realizing now I, I picked up a newspaper yeah great perfect so we could talk about it because i'm just realizing now that's a little bit of a hole in my research and that was a total accident because i definitely wanted to talk about it um anyways uh john lester born in california to an art teacher mother and uh, a chevrolet parts manager at a dealership father he loved chuck jones cartoons which uh, i.e looney tunes Mm. merry melodies and he drew his own cartoons at church service that was a little tidbit about him and after reading the art of animation by bob thomas a man named bob thomas which covers the history of disney the making of 1959 sleeping beauty it's a book i definitely want to check out because it sounds fascinating uh he decides he wants to be an animator professionally also Fucking bing bing. I just talked about this and forgot that it's actually in here. Also, Sword and the Stone, a huge factor in his decision. Jake, do you want to know what my favorite Disney movie is? The Black Cauldron? Sword and the Stone. Oh, you just like it because uh, Lexi looks like that hot lady chipmunk. Mad, mad at him. And Lexi looks like that lady chipmunk. I told her that on her first date. It's like a cute thing. It'll probably be like in the wedding thing, even though it's kind of weird because the cute girl chipmunk ends up getting turned down by the guy. So at the end of the day, is that dooming myself to some sort of a future divorce? No, I mean, it's it's just the first step in your journey to become a filthy furry. Uh, I wanted to meet a woman that looked like an animation, and I found her <laughs> And she is wonderful in the lovely Lexi. Yep. So uh, he ends up. Where enrolling. does a young, sensitive boy obsessed with Disney cartoons go to further his career in this day and age? In every day and age, for every single person that we've <laughs> ever covered who had this desire, he went to Cal Arts. California School of the Arts in 1975. If you are an animator, how is it really hard to get in there now? It, it has to be. It now. must be right. It must be fucking impossible. Is it still on the level that it? Yeah, it, it no. Was? That was like it's actually kind of a uh, one of those micro controversies that kicks up shit on the internet every now and again. Just that it's how ex- dominant that Cal Arts has been to the point where people are calling like modern cartoon styles like the Cal Arts style. Yeah, I would totally buy that. It is it is so instrumental. It's like Do you want to have an unproductive argument about that online? Come to the Wizard and the Bruiser Facebook page. 
Uh, woo, woo, we'll woo. be civil, but goddamn. Pew, 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 pew. I think it's the best school ever, and no one can tell me otherwise. I mean, with an inaugural class of, uh, you know, let's see, who was on this? Uh, Brad Bird, Tim Burton, and Henry Selleck? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be pretty that good. Was, that was that was uh, John Laster's classmates. Tim Burton will come into play in this story a little bit later on, by the way. Bit of a trailblazer. And damn, Jake is housing a Bud Light right now. That is the most what? amazing thing I've ever seen. It's Bud Light. It's like air. <laughs> it is. That's why I got it, because it's so hot. I was like, what is closest to water? <laughs> um, <laughs> that will also get me slightly drunk. Uh, anywho, he was taught by three members of Disney's Nine Old Men. I believe we covered the Nine Old Men in the Haunted Mansion episode, if you want to go back and check that out. The Haunted Mansion episode and the Iron Giant episode. Mm -hmm. And the Iron Giant episode. Uh, uh, Eric Larson, Frank Thomas, and Ollie Johnston were the three of the Nine Old Men that taught him and greatly inspired him. Uh, He created two shorts there that won the Student Academy Award for Animation. That was Lady in the Lamp, and nightmare. Now, this is where the lamp begins. If you're ever curious about, you know, when you see that lamp, jump on the eye and pop it down in every Pixar like the opening ball? logo. Um, or is you, it a, no, no, the lamp. Remember the lamp kind of jumps yeah, in and yeah, jumps he, on the oh, eye. Oh, oh, I got completely confused. I thought you can like the rubber ball that was also in the Pixar logo. And um, oh, true. No, I'm I thought you meant that. I thought you meant you confused it for a human eyeball, not the letter <laughs> I in the Pixar logo, which it also jumps on. <laughs> Guys, that lamp's jumping on everything. Little peek behind the scenes. We're sweaty and tired. <laughs> that lamp's just hopping around in all sorts of stuff. It hops, cool. on, hops on a couch, hops on a mailbox, hops on a big Hello, old Hello, I represent a very specific <laughs> fetish community, and I would like to pay a million dollars for various imagery of the lamp crushing things beneath its giant metal foot. I got jelly on a girl's toe. Does that work for you? I will give you $50,000. I'm trying to stop talking like this, but I can only talk like this, Jay. Of course we talk weird. We're perverts. Yes, please. I'll take another big old bunch of peanut butter on a Lego piece. The old lady steps on it in high heels. We find weird things sexually arousing and therefore aren't quite human. I like McDonald's mustard in a bat, in a hole that I can't. I don't want to tell you about the hole, but it's a hole that we put the McDonald's mustard in. How is McDonald's mustard the most, like, upsetting thing? Like, but it was like, ha, 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 foot stuff, whatever. And then, like, Oh, McDonald's mustard, you sick freak. Here's the secret to improv. Name a corporation and then a random product. <laughs> and you will immediately be in an improv scene. And that is where I found that. It's, that is where I found that. Anyways. fucking pro tip. Hello, everyone. It is I, the woolly wizard himself, Jake, here once again to talk about this week's sponsor, Keeps.com. Now, I just came back from the mailbox and in my hands is a fresh shipment from Keeps and it is genuinely blowing my mind. I've talked about how annoying it was to purchase these same exact FDA-approved treatments in the past. The embarrassment of having to get someone to open a locked cabinet and then the high prices I had to pay. But now? Now? Keeps is sending me these same products at a fraction of the cost directly to my house right when I need it. It's... I'm like a little bit upset. 
and how convenient they made this whole thing. All you need to do is just take five minutes to sign up and then for just a dollar a day, you can start taking control of your hair loss with the only real, clinically proven treatments that are both safe and effective to prevent hair loss. You can go through the sign up process right now on your smartphone, literally while the podcast is playing. Go ahead, try it, I dare ya. All you do is answer a few questions and take a couple of photos and then a real licensed doctor remotely reviews your case and sends you a recommended treatment plan. These are FDA approved products that help prevent hair loss and in some cases help grow back some of the hair you've lost, but they're not a total baldness cure. That's why you have to take care of this sooner rather than later. If you're concerned about that growing bald spot in the back of your head or notice thinning hair up top, now is the time to change the tide of battle and stop hair loss before it gets too serious. Because the more hair you have, the more hair you keep. And all this is for as low as $10 a month. The choice is really simple. Right now, Wizard and the Bruiser listeners can get their whole first month's treatment for free. These, <laughs> did I mention that these are actual medically approved drugs? Then And for zero dollars? That's an, it's nuts. Uh, all you have to do is go to keeps.com slash wizard. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash wizard for a free month of treatment that will help you put a stop to worrying about your hair loss and letting you just live your life again. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. Jake, I need to tell the people how the movie happened. Lassiter gets hired at Disney, and he has a pretty good run. <laughs> yeah, no issues at Disney. Nothing bad I mean, happened there. For a, for a hot second there, he's doing pretty good. He's like one of the guys. I'm going to take these glasses off because I have officially fogged them up from sweat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, anywho, um, he creates these two shorts. During his summer breaks, though, this is really cute. He gets a job as a jungle cruise skipper uh, at the at Disney World. Disneyland. Uh, Disneyland, sorry, we're in L.A., um, where he learned comedic timing and how to entertain captive audiences on the ride. Now, this is the thing you need to understand, which we're going to reiterate in a little bit. John Lat, these are a bunch of programmer nerds. They do not know how to spin a yarn or tell a joke necessarily. Right. Like, they are... That's like secondary to what their training is. You they're know? building. They're building the world's most advanced tool set, and like waiting for someone else to, in theory, take it. Like actually use them. The shocking element of all of this is that toy. The script for Toy Story is incredibly good, and the and it has really good comedy in it. Much less like everything Pixar did after that. This is like Uber nerds fucking banging it out of the park. Um, on so many levels. So in, anyways, he's immediately hired by Walt Disney Productions in 1979. Um, uh, and uh, this is a weird time for Disney. They're getting a lot of they're getting a lot of shit from people for plateauing essentially and not innovating during the early 90s or early 80s rather. Um, he also during this time, John Lasseter sees the cycle sequences for the upcoming film Tron and has a revelation about CGI. He realizes he could be uh, that computers could be used to make films with three-dimensional backgrounds where traditionally animated characters could interact to add a new level of visually stunning depth that had not been possible before. Lasseter and his colleague Glenn Keane want to do something with CGI and so they start going back and forth and they decide um, a brave little toaster adaptation would be great. Brave Little Toaster was a popular kids book, um, and they really want to make it happen. They're working at Disney. In order to do so, they decide to do a test project using Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, I wonder if this exists anywhere. Like, did they finish it at all? 
they got into a lot of trouble for for making this. Essentially, what they did was. Apparently, they were so excited about the project, they just started working on it, and they didn't really communicate to the executives, I guess, well enough that they were doing this. And so when they found out that they had been working on this project, they uh, essentially Lasseter gets fired. All right. Hey, okay. Okay, guys. Uh, Grumpy old millionaires, hear me out. (laughs) I wasted a lot of time (laughs) and other employees and money and costs to make some shit you don't understand. Huh? 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 You ready? I'm like, do, did I do it right? It, you, you honestly have no idea what I'm talking about. I wasted so much money on it. They fire him immediately, and he leaves. He runs out of the building, and Ed Catmull, who uh, at Lucasfilm, literally stands outside of the Disney building waiting for people to run out of it crying so that he can hire them. He immediately well, hires Lasseter. Well, had been uh, kind of ingratiating himself to yeah. the computer graphics community because he was eager to like learn as much as he could to incorporate it into his Disney work. Mm-hmm. So he had uh, made like connections with Ed Catmull. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like it wasn't so far-fetched that he would talk to him and like right. the two would eventually work together. Totally, totally, totally. So he's working with Catmull's team, uh, and it's a bunch of computer graphics engineers. He learns the software, and he ends up creating these shorts that we were talking about before. Luxo Jr. Uh, Wally B. The first one he makes is Wally something Wally B. Oh, okay. What's God? Why can't shit? I I don't have it. The Adventures Eh. of Andre and Wally B, which you can find on YouTube. Uh, It is a very. It is so so primitive and so like. It's. It feels like a. It feels like an early video game CG, like like a cutscene from like a bad PlayStation One game. Uh, but it's the first time that a actual trained animator is using these tools to convey character and comedy and jokes, and it immediately sets. You know, it gets shown at animation festivals. Um, it's up for uh, all these technical awards, and it's. It finally happened. Like these nerds that wasted millions and millions of dollars developing these tools to create images are finally in the hands of someone whose entire life's blood is conveying emotion and sound and movement for a desired emotional effect. Like mm-hmm. this is a perfect convergence of of tools, expertise, talent, and development. Yes. And so um, now we'll go back to the Pixar image computer failing. It had fewer than 300 of these machines were ever sold as the government deemed it too expensive for mass deployment. So it was only kind of a specialty thing for like businesses. Uh, and Disney so, ends up buying a couple. Yes, Disney ends up buying a couple. They're kind of getting in there. Disney's kind of dabbling with Pixar. Their next attempt at an animation film was Monkey, which was based on the Monkey King character from the 16th century Chinese novel Journey to the West, which we've talked about before, I think. In, in the Gorillas episode. And in Dragon Ball, maybe, oh, yeah. too? Oh. Yeah, right? And uh, Dragon Ball Z as well episodes. Um, and uh, so uh, they start working on that, but of course, still the tech is the tech is just not there yet. So Walt Disney, um, uh, as you said, the, the Disney company purchases some of the computers themselves. They're um, working on it as part of their computer animation production system, trying to pretty much just trying to migrate all these laborious ink and paint um, 
uh, 2D animations into a more automated method. Um, just trying to digitize things like The Simpsons went through the same thing. Like a bunch of different companies, you know, they started just digitizing their work. To Most make of the <clears throat> 90s Disney classics that we, uh, you know, stuff like The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast was colored on Pixar-based uh, machines. Yes. And so Jobs is now investing more and more money into the company until at $50 million, he just straight up ends up owning it. <laughs> so there's also that. Um, so he's kind of, he's really getting in there. And that's when they get to Tin Toy. Oh my God, Tin Toy. Tin Toy, which I threw on earlier. That baby does not look good. That uh, no, that gross scary. weird baby is, uh, is Tin Toy also the one with the snow globes? No, the snowman no. one is the one with the snow globes. Yeah. Uh, Tin Toy just has like an old man baby. Mm-hmm. Like like the baby tech is just not there yet. Mm-hmm. It's a very cute little short with the a toy baby and a little great. toy. The toy tech great i think they learned that but the baby they just can't quite get human skin mm-hmm. in a good way um he kind of looks weirdly aged a uh, bit of a benjamin button baby a little bbb going on there it's a 1988 short uh and it's told from the perspective of the toy referencing lasseter's love of classic toys which kind of starts coming into play and also wins the 1988 academy award for best animation short film now this immediately gets disney feeling real shitty about letting go of Lassiter. They realize Lassiter is like way more important than they gave him credit for. So Lassiter, though, at this point, he's really wanting to stay with Pixar, and um, uh, he's just very grateful for what Steve Jobs has done for him. I think there was a quote. I have it in here somewhere. I'm going to try, try to stay it offhand. He says, if I had gone back to Disney, I would have been a director. Mm-hmm. If I, But if I stayed at Pixar, I could make history. Mm-hmm. And that's what he aims to do. He wants to really like change the whole landscape. So he says, fuck! Fuck you, Disney. You fuck. Get your fucking ass out of here. And Disney's just like, oh, I'm drunk. <laughs> and I'll stay where I stay. And I'm a multinational just- corporation <laughs> giving voice and animus. It's Thanksgiving and you just <laughs> fucking tried to uh, spit on my mother's ass. You think I'm going to not ask you to leave my fucking... My mother's house on Thanksgiving, I'm John Lasseter. And in the future, I'm going to do some shady shit with women, which we'll talk about later, please. I know you're fuming right now, certain listeners, but we will talk about that later. Um, So anyways, uh, Lasseter stays with Pixar. And uh, at that point, Disney is just like, oh, fuck. You know, I changed the voice for Disney, as I do. Um, It was a drunk guy a second ago, and now it's like some weird (laughs) nerd who has constipation. This is a a classic episode in the making, I can already tell. (laughs) People love this episode. And I also, I want to thank everybody at a time for listening. This is one of your top ten favorite Wizard of the Bruiser episodes when we do that during the Bicentennial. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The wiki is just blowing up. Ooh, that sticky wiki. <laughs> oh, my God. Anywho, um, so Lassiter uh, 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 stays with Pixar, but Disney's like, you know what? We're going to fucking make it happen with Lassiter. We know this Lassiter guy's too good to be true, and we need to figure this out. So, essentially, while um, courting Lassiter, they, um, uh, Jobs is also looking to Disney and literally has this quote to say, we want to do a film with you. That would make us happy. Peter Schneider, the president of Disney Feature Animation, feels the exact same way. Peter Schneider is going to be our culprit that actually ends up stabbing this whole project in the back over and over again later on, as you'll come to find out. We'll get into that in a little bit. We've got a few key players to talk about to set up this whole deal. This deal is what we're going to be talking about for the next 
several minutes uh, because it's so back and forth. What and year so are we crazy. at right now? We're at, oh God, I don't even know. Is it 1990? 1988 is the year that the short came out and won the Academy Award probably in 1989, right? Yeah. So that means that this is either 89 or 1990. So uh, Pixar is short. still struggling. They need a hit on their hands. Uh, Jobs ends up pimping them out to uh, various commercials to uh, make CG animation for that. So when you think of like all those like bright and zany CG animated 90s like candy commercials and toy commercials, yeah. that's actually Lasseter. That's actually Pixar Tell doing me. that work. Dancing like Lifesavers, the Amazing yeah. Fruit Bears. I like, wouldn't even be shocked. They didn't do Dancing Baby for Ali McBeal, did they? No, that was a separate thing. Okay. But, uh, but that's around this time, right? I mean, it's just it's, it's weird around this time with that with CG. Everyone and, likes and CG. It's very cool. Well, also though, Disney opened opens up the door for a possible collaboration with an outsider, which, by the way, this is unheard of at this point. Mm-hmm. Disney makes Disney movies. That's it. They don't do any of this other stuff. Not only stuff. that, but they, on purpose, fuck with competitors yeah. like Don Bluth and all those Totally. Other, yeah. So they already open up the door by making, and I think this was almost part of a play in order to get Pixar in with them. They open up the door by working with Tim Burton, who I said we would be mentioning again, and uh, they, because Disney made Nightmare Before Christmas, and that was with Burton, and that was outside of their department. So that is the first kind of trigger to say, hey, we're willing to work with people outside of our, in you know, super, super secure situation. It's like kind of feudal Japan. You know what I mean? It is very much like feudal Japan. Uh, so- <laughs> and John Lasseter is like, Obu Nobuna- Oda Nobunaga. <laughs> The Tiger of Kyushu. All right, all right. We got to get I made that up. I made that up. Weebs, don't correct me. I refuse to be in this metaphor right now. (laughs) So the other key players are uh, Disney CEO Michael Eisner, um, the chairman of the film division Jeffrey Katzenberg, big player in all of this. He was there for... Uh, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. He's a top motherfucking dog, and he's also a bit of a nightmare, as we'll get into in a little bit. They're both trying to get Lasseter back into their under their guard, um, but Lasseter again is is not into it. So they're willing to work it out. Pick the Pixar folks meet with Disney. Um, and try to pitch something. And this is kind of their first meeting. And their first meeting they find to be really fucking tense because apparently there's a lot of politics happening that they are unawares of at that time. Katzenberg is trying to make this movie happen, but without Schneider's, Peter Schneider's involvement. And this is what sets off Peter Schneider always kind of being lurking around, sort of trying to stop things. And to his credit, that sounds shitty. It sounds kind of shitty. He was the one who wanted to make a thing with... Pixar, he was the one kind of adamant about it. And then Katzenberg, who is known to be a bit of a, you know, MacGuffin, a bit of a kind of an overbearer, um, is pushing him out. And that causes all these weird issues that they translated as they're not interested in working with us just because the room was so shitty. So they thought it was a done deal when they walk away from that meeting. Well, they end up uh, getting a phone call and they get brought back into another meeting and they pitch a tin toy Christmas, which would be a half an hour TV special. Uh, well, it was a tough sell for Lasseter's and other animators, um, actually, as Katzenberg was known as a micromanaging tyrant, to, to which he said, in the actual meeting, everybody thinks I'm a tyrant. I am a tyrant, but I'm usually right. So the, the Lasseter and all of them are kind of like, do we even want to work with these guys? This is kind of crazy. You know, they sort of straight up fired me. Like, this Katzenberg guy's kind of a mess. Um 
And Katzenberg also uh, tosses out the half-hour special concept, says to John Laster, John, since you won't come work for me, I'm going to make it work this way. And uh, Pixar, on the verge of bankruptcy, they have to make a deal with Disney. They, they have no choice. Uh, so the contract negotiations go back and forth over and over again for a good while. Everybody has different demands. Everybody has different wants over the ownership of this film that is un, just not even figured out yet. Like they don't have anything. They don't have a treatment, much less a script. So, um, you know, they're all sort of speculating. And essentially what it comes down to is Disney owns the picture and its characters outright. They have creative control and can pay and pay Pixar about 12.5% of the ticket revenues. Uh, also, Disney gets the option, but not the obligation, to do Pixar's next two films and the right to make with or without Pixar sequels using the characters in the film. Disney could also kill the film at any time with only a small penalty. So this contract, what I just told you, these contract details, Steve Jobs... And Michael Eisner would end up going fucking back and forth mm-hmm. arguing about this contract for for years after. Mm-hmm. Years and years after. It is such a huge point of contention between the two. So, ju- you know, just reading about all of this, and this is pretty much the done deal. The working title of this first feature film, by the way, would be called Toy Story. Now, all of that to say... We're starting off, you know. You know what my con, you know my theory about relationships, my or my um, p- w- one of my many pieces of advice about relationships. Don't stick your dick in crazy. Don't stick your dick in crazy. If you're upside down on a bridge, d- stick your dick in crazy. Uh, <laughs> and also, if a relationship starts dramatic, it's probably not going to end well. Mm. And this relationship started off damn dramatic, but luckily, it did end up ending up pretty well but a quite a shocker to me quite a shocker to me because this does not sound like a very good happy kind of thing it seems like everybody's sort of at each other and this would be the case for the next several years in terms of putting the script together because yes it took many years and there was a whole fucking the whole just just a, a production shutdown that we're going to get to get to in a second and just a whole back and forth and another classic like, this is how an executive can fuck a, th- a vision up, you know? Um, a classic one of those with uh, Mr. Jeffrey Katzenberg. So, the script. The first draft is done by John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, who would go on to be director of Finding Nemo and WALL-E, and I believe he also wrote all three Toy Stories, co-wrote all three Toy Stories. Uh, also, Pete Doctor, who is director of Monsters, Inc., Up and Inside Out. I mean, these guys are, like, about to be huge, huge successes. Pete Doctor uh, is one of the most revolutionary character animators mm. in the field of CG. It was his job to take these rigs and these like experimental, this experimental software and actually create like life out of it. Lasseter oversaw like the timing and gave like approval and, you know, helped storyboard everything. But like when you think of like those crazy expressions that Woody does in the movie. Yeah. That's like, that's Doctor. That is his like hands creating life out of these what should be stiff uh, three uh, CG uh, characters. Well, this first draft reflects very little of the finished film. They end up taking Tinny from the Tin Toy Short um, and putting him in. And Tinny is it's a one man band. It's like a little kind of symbol clanking yeah. little tin toy named Tinny. Uh, they end up putting Tinny up with uh, a ventriloquist dummy, uh, which they would later name Woody. Um, 
uh, and sent them on a sprawling odyssey. Woody was the main villain that abused the other toys until they started an uprising. And after some storyboards were tossed over to Disney execs, creative control was moved over from Katzenberg to Pixar. From this point onward, the treatment um, uh, in the treatment, the core idea was, uh, and I quote, toys deeply want children to play with them and that this desire drives their hopes, fears, and actions, which is a good pure place to start from. Katzenberg gives some good advice here in this moment, advising the writers to turn it into an odd couple buddy pick and had them watch movies like Defiant Ones and 48 Hours. Um, so with the main characters still being Tinny and the Dummy, in September 1991, there was a second treatment that was now closer to the final product, a little bit more, a little bit more tied in. Tinny is decidedly too antiquated uh, uh, and is changed to a military character and then a space themed character uh he went from lunar lunar larry to tempest from morph which is a fucking horrible name not a great name and, and then finally to buzz lightyear of course named after buzz aldrin the astronaut um his colors are drawn from laster and his wife whose favorite colors are green and purple by the way Oh, that's is that a fucking fun little fucking tidbit for you, Jay. Well, there was I saw a lot of early test animation of Buzz Lightyear where he initially had like a very red color scheme. Interesting. So maybe that just came later. Yeah. Huh? Um, Woody is inspired by Casper the Friendly Ghost uh, in the sense that uh, Laster had a Casper doll when he was a child. And I looked up this Casper dog. Very true. Hard plastic head, mm -hmm. but a soft cloth body. Actually looked very similar. The big kind of uh, wide-eyed expression. Very, very similar looking. Very interesting to see, uh, see those images. So... Um, uh, Bud Lucky, who is the character designer, a character designer for Toy Story, as well as movies like The Incredibles and A Bug's Life, he suggested that a cowboy theme instead of a ventriloquist dummy would be better and, uh, in terms of a better contrast between you know what Buzz is all about, being like this futuristic spaceman, as opposed to this kind of this dummy thing. Uh, Buzz, uh, uh, Woody, uh, was originally the name for the ventriloquist dummy, but they kept the name Woody because there was a Western actor named Woody Stroh, they decided to uh, kind of retcon base it off of. Uh, there was also inspiration in terms of odd couple films from the movie Midnight Run, a fantastic movie with John De Niro and Charles Grodin about a bounty hunter taking a criminal account, a white-collar crime accountant type, across the country to turn him in. And also, the odd couple, I mean, I'm going to explain what this is, but if you don't know what this is, you should probably just like watch the odd <laughs> couple. Uh, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau play two divorced men who decide to live together. One's really messy, one's really neat and clean. They're very uh, blah, blah, blah. It's very funny. It's great. Another movie, which I need to see. Have you seen Castle in the Sky by Miyazaki? Uh, that's what I'm actually missing. Yeah, I need to see Castle in the Sky. At first, I thought it was Howl's Moving Castle. I was like, how the fuck did that? Wait, that is amazing. That was made way after. Well, Lasseter. Story, but no, Castle in the Sky was a different film. Uh, what were you going to say? Lasseter famously was a huge proponent of uh, Hayao Miyazaki uh, to the point where even back when he was working for Disney, he actually like would show... Um, uh, Castle of Cagliostro, which was, you know, Miyazaki's uh, Lupin the Third movie, which existed before Studio Ghibli even was a thing, as like this incredible showcase of what animation was capable of and like, you know, what they were doing in Japan. And so when we came time to uh, bring Ghibli movies over to America, it was Lasseter who really lent his name to it and helped uh, push Disney to help with distribution. So that's just that's it makes a lot of sense that there'd be Miyazaki influences. In very cool, very cool. So uh, they start getting to work on this stuff. Uh, 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 
we're talking about writers that do not have any credits to their name for the most part. I think that there was a little bit, but really nothing. Laster and Peter, Pete Doctor end up attend, attending a seminar by Robert McKee, which this almost makes me sad. Um, this strongly influenced their approach to the script. Robert McKee does those seminars about like um, Save Hollywood. the Cat. Save the Cat. Is he the Save the Cat guy? I thought he was. I think he's a different one. He's a different guy? Maybe. Either oh. way, it's the same kind of thing. It feels like... The reason why every Hollywood movie feels like it's the same thing. If you've seen the movie Adaptation, I'm pretty sure that's actually yeah. Robert McKee, right? Or, yeah. or, or whatever, based on him. Uh, anywho, it's one of those kind of like, just write your script by these numbers right here. Mm. Connect the dots and you'll have a Hollywood movie. By page 70, the hero should have his dick cut off. Right, exactly. By All page that 80, the reattachment scene. <laughs> They would also bring in writers Joel Cohen, not to be confused with the Cohen brothers, uh, different Cohen, and uh, Alex Sokolow to help uh, kind of punch the script up. Uh, you know, there were, there were even, uh, and there was like all sorts of back and forth going on. Apparently the encounter between Buzz and the alien squeaky toys in Pizza Planet, that was a later edition that came from a huge brainstorm session with several directors, story artists, and animators from Disney. I mean, this is like a huge, just, this script's flying all over the place. It's finally approved by Katzenberg on January 19th, 1993, and uh, we get into the casting, which is, oh my God, what a cast. Yeah. What a fucking cast in this movie. Well, I mean, it's kind of like, it's it's kind of luck of the draw because, uh, you know, uh, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, uh, you know, two legendary big stars in the 90s, uh, they, like, Forrest Gump hadn't come out yet. And, like, Home Improvement was still, like, this, like, uh, you know, wasn't a the major sitcom hit that it was no that was more connected to because it was owned by disney so that was how tim allen kind of got in there i think and i I can't remember he was actually like maybe even um don rickles actually suggested him as well really comedy connection yeah because of the comedy i'm half remembering it's he got a referral and the uh pixar team was like who what but at least Laster did always want tom hanks to play woody as he said uh uh, as Laster himself said uh, Tom Hanks has the ability to take emotions and make them appealing, even if the character, like the one in A League of Their Own, is down and out and despicable, which is perfect, because Woody, at the end of the day, is sort of um, a stick in the mud, but he's just, with Hanks playing him, he's so so damn lovable. I mean, half the movie, he's screaming. It's just mm. Tom Hanks screaming <laughs> in the, like, the very affable, likable way that Tom yes. Hanks is constantly screaming. <laughs> um, also, if you look at old footage of Woody, uh, they he had a much harsher uh, kind of identity. He the leftover from the ventriloquist dummy uh, design is very apparent. He has like an unhinged jaw, mm. and it's it's uh, his more assholeish characteristics are more on display. And it's kind of amazing how I think it was in Tom Hanks's performance that so, like that kind of softness and that like kind of innocence and good nature kind of shone through. And they had to like kind of smooth out and kind of. Uh, Niceify his yeah, entire visage. Definitely. And uh, Billy Crystal was up for the role of Buzz. He turned it down, which he later regretted, which There's is why we see him in There's test footage you can Inc. find of... Uh, this was handmade by John Lasseter of um, uh, Buzz Lightyear delivering the, uh, what's it, wagon wheel coffee table rant from When <laughs> Harry Met Sally. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, well, well, And we'll talk about that later because uh, that's what they would do uh, that was an animation trick they would use in Disney. They would take uh, an actor's performance from another movie, like a monologue, and put it into their animation just to see how it would fit with the character. Ah. And that is actually what convinced Hanks to take the part. 
Oh. Was they used uh uh what was it from? It was from Turner and Hooch. They used a rant of his from Turner and Hooch, and the animated Woody sang the rant, and it just looks so damn good, so he went along with it. Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and Jim Carrey also all up for the Buzz Lightyear role, but Lasseter later finally offers it to Tim Allen, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, there you go. Just talked about that Disney technique, so I can jump past that a little bit, and on to uh, the rest of the cast, which is so fucking good. Just One to name a few. One of the big things that... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just to just I I watched the movie with the uh, director's commentary on, and one of the things that Tim Allen brought to the thing is they had always imagined Buzz Lightyear as like Buzz Lightyear from the twenty third and a half century, like you know, real uh, real kind of uh, what's what's you know, like old timey, yeah, like... old timey space hero, and Tim Allen basically plays him like a cop. <laughs> Yeah, he's just like a just a very straightforward, uh, self serious space cop. So great, and that was a brilliant choice because it like it directly lo- contrasts. I like, lo- I mean, still do love just that yeah. their their chemistry so good. Mm-hmm. Like like Buzz Lightyear is just so immediate. I'm like remember everybody had the Buzz Lightyear toy because it was so cool. And yeah. like, oh, it was just such a good, yeah, he was they, great. One designing Buzz, the Buzz Lightyear, like they were aware that this, they, some poor toy maker had to incorporate all that shit into <laughs> a toy. And they're like, oh, sorry, Hasbro. <laughs> well, speaking of Hasbro, they, of course, licensed Mr. Potato Head. Mm-hmm. They also tried to license something else, but they wouldn't let them. I think it was Barbie. Joe. Well, B- Barbie, yes, and G- Hasbro wouldn't let go of uh, G.I. Joe. Barbie was Hasbro as well. I think Barbie Mattel. was someone else. Mattel, right? M- um, Mattel also wouldn't let – they didn't want Barbie to have a voice because mm-hmm. they wanted the little girls to put their voices on Barbie and stuff. They thought it would screw it up. And then G.I. Joe, Hasbro also turned down, but they did let them have Mr. But Potato the- Head, who was played by Don Rickles, who was so fantastic. Um, Wallace Shawn as uh, Rex, as T. He's so perfect as the T-Rex character. It's a direct play on how on Jurassic Park, the mm-hmm. idea of a T-Rex that's has Wallace Shawn's voice. They were very aware of the cultural spoofing. Of they course, were doing. the obvious casting of R. Lee Ermey as the sergeant. Uh, rest in peace, by the way. And uh, Jim Varney is also rest in peace. I'm so glad Jim Varney's in this movie, and I want to do an earnest episode. I mean, they altered a Slinky Dog. You know, doesn't look like the Slinky Dog toy that uh, they released back in like the 80s or whatever. But having heard Varney's voice, they went back and gave him more of a hound dog appearance because mm-hmm. that, that, oh wow, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even do it. Yeah. Woody, yeah. no, <laughs> I believe in you. That was the worst. Edit this so out, good. edit this out. No, keep it. And, uh, and of course, uh, John Ratzenberg, uh, you know, that was just like a, the so-called good luck charm of Pixar who's appeared in like every other movie. Uh, <laughs> The character of Ham, he was supposed to be like this tragic figure in the original one because he was the piggy bank and he was made of porcelain and he couldn't like move or do anything. (laughs) But he had like the only view of the window. And so he was supposed to be this like wise older. So kind of like Cliff. He was supposed to be this like wise kind of patron of the room. Gotcha. So that brings us to the Black Friday incident. This is the issue that is starting to happen while they're starting to animate this uh, all of this stuff to the script that they wrote. They bring in these different screen tests and show them to Katzenberg, and he begins to rip them to fucking shreds, giving all these notes, just trying to push for more edginess for the main characters, trying to trying to make it appeal more to adults and children at the same time. Uh, and the consensus was that Woody was stripped of all charm. Tom Hanks even exclaimed during a recording session that the character was a jerk. 
because Katzenberg just kept making him a big old jerk, probably making him all Katzenberg-y, you know what Mm. I mean? Probably seeing himself in the main role. Uh, On November 19th, 1993, Pixar screens the first half of the film for Katzenberg and other Disney execs, including the already bitter Schneider, who's in there trying to Schneider it up. (laughs) And Schneider declares it a mess and orders production to cease immediately. Katzenberg asks the Disney, uh, Disney exec Thomas Schumacher why it was so bad, and he says... Uh, and I quote, because it's not their movie anymore. It's completely not the movie that John set out to make. Lasseter himself says, it was a story filled with the most unhappy, mean characters that I've ever seen. I want to see this cut so bad, Jake. This would be so good. A bunch of asshole toys. <laughs> I would... A- annoying assholes <laughs> in CGI. Please release a movie called Asshole Toy Story. Asshole Toy Story and just release that first half of the movie. You've unfinished. got a fucker in me. <laughs> you fuck. You fuck. Katzenberg allows... God fucking damn it, Woody! Get your fucking cowboy ass off the fucking bed before I fucking put a bullet in it! I was in Big. (laughs) I was in Turner and Hooch. I was in Fuck Yourself, Buzz Lightyear. What up, pussies? It's me, Sid, the hero of the story. I'm gonna stick firecrackers up things, but... (laughs) Yeah, Sid. Sid, Sid, Sid. Sid. You fucking rule, Sid! (laughs) Katzenberg allows Lasseter, Stanton, Doctor, and Ramped to stop production for two weeks and rework the scripts, shifting the production crew to commercials in the meantime. So they're going back over to the commercials mm-hmm. that you were describing before, and they are lucky motherfuckers because Schneider wanted the whole thing to just go go into the garbage can. Kasperberg had to fight really hard to keep the movie going, mm-hmm. knowing he was the reason why it was fucking up. And uh, this is when Joss Whedon comes in. He uh, jumps in with them to help punch this script up and bring it to its form that we know of today. Jobs also, Steve Jobs, this is kind of where he's, uh, again, kind of in the background. He's just throwing his own money at the situation, trying to keep things going, later fighting for more money. Because you have to understand, they have a $17 million budget. And in comparison, Lion King had a budget of $45 million. Mm-hmm. And this is like new technology, breaking ground. They've got all this crazy tech they're working with. They Compared need money. Compared to a Disney production, their, t- their team is also super tiny. Yes, but jo- and Jobs is like, hey man, Katzenberg, because of your quote unquote help on our script, we're now uh, like way behind on budget. So you need to give us more money. They end up reworking the script, mainly get uh, making Woody uh, not a tyrannical boss of Andy's other toys, and more into being their wise and caring leader that we know today, while also changing Buzz to make it a little more clear that he doesn't realize he's a toy, which is such a very mm. important element in the film. Maybe the most important element in the film, you know, is him going from not realizing he's a toy to realizing it and dealing with that. I think that's where the most humanity comes in, mm. you know? Um, so the film goes back in production in oh, February. Oh, you mean when the fun spaceman gets existential depression <laughs> in the last act of the movie? Yeah. I love it. You don't love it? I mean, Coco. It you don't love good. Coco? I do love Coco. The film goes back in production in February 1994. The staff goes from 24 to 110 members. There are 27 animators, 22 technical directors, and 61 other artists and engineers. And this animation process is fucking nanners, as we are now going to talk about. Jake Young. Lasseter says, We had to make things look more organic. Every leaf and blade of grass had to be created. 
We had to give the world a sense of history. So the doors are banged up. The floors have scuffs. I mean, if you jump into a video game that's not polished, mm-hmm. you'll see that. You'll see just a very – it just doesn't look right. It looks like a, a – A wooden box with some textures. Yeah, it's it. just this – it doesn't look real whatsoever. And it especially has to be kind of tough because they need to have fake toys that would – where that stuff would be kind of, you know, seem like plastic and, and feeling. So that means the real world needs to feel even more real to like contrast that to make sure everything the, doesn't look like a toy. With the lighting systems, like basically every single unique surface in the in the movie had to have a unique shader put onto it, which is more render time, more art, more technical stuff. It's yeah, no, this was an, a, a huge ask. 27 animators worked on the film using 400 computer models to animate the characters. Each character was either created out of clay or was first modeled off of a computer-drawn diagram before reaching the computer-animated design whose motions were then coded in. So actually, kind of like Doom, we talked about in that episode, you know, they started off with these clay models and then they'd scan them in and animate them using using the tech. Um, Woody was the most complex for this. He required 723 motion controls, including 212 for just his face alone, and 58 for just his mouth. They used techniques to create the illusion of real cameras, dollies, tripods, and cranes. That was thanks uh, mostly to the layout department, who would place the models in the shot, framing it with a virtual camera that had movement programmed in, because they really wanted to give the audience the feel they were watching a movie shot with a real camera. Mm-hmm. And and that was like the biggest trick. And I feel like video games at the time really reaching for the same thing, really trying to find that cinematic feel. In order to do that, you need dolly shots, you need cranes, you need movement well there's there's so many like little technical tricks that they had to do to pull off each shot um stuff that i'm thinking about like scenes where woody was talking to buzz uh woody's model towers over buzz light years so they actually sunk woody like a couple of like inches into the ground so that they could fit on on frame together and you have you have to realize too these are eight different teams pass that that these each individual shot is like passing through essentially and it's pretty fucking impressive i didn't even mention the art department that that set up that initial shot uh with the color scheme and the general lighting before it goes to the layout department and then it goes to the animation department uh which was headed by rich quaid and ash brannon um who would sequence hand-built poses that would be filled in by the minv program the minv program i got m-e-n-v minv Hard word to say. But either way, that's the name of the program. I was, you know, I tried to find some old behind-the-scenes footage. And uh, the way that, like, the people animating these models had to, you know, you had to remember what each of those individual articulation points was on a giant spreadsheet and know to, like, adjust the numbers to be like, Vertex 704.5 up plus 50%. Vertex 703 down 30. And that was just to get, like, a simple mouth flap going. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, insanely intense. Uh, they they had actors recording their verse, voices first and animators spending a week per eight seconds of animation. Whenever I read stuff like about this or like uh, stop motion, it is just blows my mind the amount of patience that these people needed to have in order to make this happen. And by the way, 
they're not getting paid oodles and boodles of money just yet. Mm-hmm. They're getting paid very little money with the with the sole per, like the sole drive just being that they're breaking ground and doing something that's never been done before as their pure motivation to get this done. Shading and light of, lighting effects were added after all of that. Um, and then each completed shot went to a render farm of 117 Sun Microsystems computers that ran 24 hours a day. The finished animation came out at around 3 minutes per week each frame taking anywhere from 45 minutes to 30 hours to render the film required 800,000 machine hours and 114,240 frames of animation in total to create 77 minutes of animation spread across 1,561 shots lastly after all of that 300 computer processors rendered the film to its final Form. Now, before we even move on, can you imagine that they made half the movie, sent it to <clears> Disney, <throat> and Disney wanted to shut down production, and then they had to start all over? That was the process. This process was being done then. I would have lost my fucking mind. How these people all stayed together and made this shit happen is beyond me. You know what I mean? Completely insane. I mean, Holden, having worked in comedy for several years, you, I don't think you Quite have any... immediately. I, I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> well, what? What now? I, you have no idea what it's like to bust your ass for very little actual result <laughs> with a bunch of psychopaths. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Uh, so that leads us now to the music and the sound, and I'm so excited because we get to talk about Randy Newman. Uh, he's, I like him. Skywalker Sound mixed the sound You're talking effects. about Cocaine Randy? I'm talking about Cocaine Randy. <laughs> Skywalker Sound mixes the sound effects in with the music score. Unlike other Disney films at the time, Lasseter did not want the film to be a musical, as I was talking about before, which I loved as a kid because I didn't but like you musicals. You watch it now, and like those Randy Newman songs hit the exact same points that a musical would. Well, that's because that was their compromise, ah. right? They, uh, they, they end up, uh, you know, he doesn't want it to happen because it's a buddy film featuring real toys. Uh, and he says this in quotes, a perfect uh, reasoning. It would have been a really bad musical because it's a buddy movie. It's about people who won't admit what they want, much less sing about it. Buddy movies are about sublimating, punching, punching an arm. I hate you. It's not about open emotion. Disney wanted it to be a musical still, so they reached a compromise. The film would use non-diegetic, uh, I hope I'm saying that word right, songs over the action, as in The Graduate, which is another phenomenal movie that uses this with Simon and Garfunkel songs, to convey and amplify the emotions that Buzz and Woody were feeling. And that's when they end up tapping. Disney and Laster both hit up Randy Newman for the job. Laster says himself, his songs are touching, witty, and satirical, and he would deliver the emotional underpinning of every scene. Randy Newman, if you're unfamiliar with him, he's an American singer, songwriter, arranger, composer, and pianist known for his satirical pop songs. He ha- looks like a slightly more handsome Jewish Danny DeVito. He's one of those like guys who initially just thought he was just going to end up being a writer because mm-hmm. he's not exactly like lighting up the stage, <laughs> but he ends up having a wonderful sol- solo career after a while. He's heavily influenced by Ray Charles, which makes a ton of sense if you listen to his music. He has a uh, he is a songwriter since the age of 17. He wrote songs for Dusty Springfield and the OJs, just to name a couple, and he ends up debuting his own album in 1968. I believe he's 25 years old by that point. The self-titled Randy Newman. Uh, he also... Get to I Love L.A. <laughs> he Get also, to I Love L.A. I mean, I don't have I Love L.A. Anymore. I Love L.A. 
<laughs> he also <laughs> he also first scored for television uh, in 1962 for shows like Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and wrote pop songs for films starting in 1964. Also, I had no idea about this, and we totally need to do an uh, episode on the movie Three Amigos. He co-wrote that with Steve Martin, Lord and Lord Michaels. And he wrote three songs for the film, and he provided the voice for the singing bush. I didn't know any of that. I had, you just told me. That's amazing. If you haven't seen Three Amigos yet, by the way, it is one one of the. I think it's one of the best comedies ever. Maybe right. I on it every time it came on Comedy Central, I just switched I channels. <laughs> what? I would stop everything to watch it. It was that mo- It was one of those movies where literally I was like, oh. Oh, it's on? Oh, okay. I'm, then I know what I'm doing for the next, like, hour and, a, hour and a half. I'd be like, oh, man, this isn't a critic rerun. Fuck you. <laughs> a plethora. It's a plethora. <laughs> uh, so, also, he wrote, The Singing Bush. You don't remember that? No. Uh, Jimmy got gone, and I don't care. Jimmy, they're supposed to, like, go to The Singing Bush and, like, talk to it or something, and it just keeps <laughs> singing at them, and they're just like, fuck you. They just, uh, and then he kills it accidentally. <laughs> no, wait, they shoot the Invisible Man accidentally. <laughs> it's so funny. You gotta watch it. I guess you gotta amigos. watch Three Amigos. Uh, he also wrote, You've Got a Friend in Me in One Day. I believe Isn't that it. that amazing? I believe it, too. It's such a good song, Jake. I'll listen to it again. Can we play it on the episode? We can, right? Just a couple of bars. Mary, hit it. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road so this movie, uh, this movie is still not, no one's necessarily sure it's going to be the hit that it was. Steve Jobs, in fact, he's doubting the film's potential success and even spoke with a few companies about selling it, such as Hallmark and Microsoft, uh, by, the, by uh, the, the selling it, I mean Pixar. Uh, but as the project moved forward, he got more excited about it. And he decided that the release of Toy Story uh, in November would be the occasion to take Pixar public. Steve Jobs had this to say about Toy Story coming out. If Toy Story is a modest hit, say $75 million at the box office, we'll, Pixar and Disney, both break even. If it gets $100 million, we'll both make money. But if it's a real blockbuster and earns $200 million or so at the box office, we'll make good money, and Disney will make a lot of money. Upon its release... On November 22nd, 1995, Toy Story manages to gross more than $350 million worldwide, thus almost doubling his ideal expectation. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And it's, it's phenomenal. And, you know, I mean, it shattered box office records. Considering how huge Disney was killing it in the 90s with these blockbuster animated movies, Toy Story blew those out of the water. So that leads me to the end of talking about Toy Story. I don't know how much time you want to spend on it. We've already gone pretty well over uh, an hour. Um, but Laster's a dick bag. Do you want to just really quickly kind of briefly go over that? And it's not a dick bag. I don't know what he is because I, I wasn't this there. Is, all right. This is one of those things. I'm going to talk about it. And you'll probably be one of the people, like, just statistically. You know, I just feel like it needs to be talked about. Like, if yeah. we're going to do a Ren and Stimpy in the episode, we ha- we're going to have yeah. to talk about that as well uh, yeah. to, to be fair. And not to just be like, Laster, 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 Laster. You right. know what I mean? Uh, but here's this guy who spent his entire... Like, animation is a very isolated uh, uh, pastime. Uh, he spent... And he teams up with a bunch of computer technicians. Also a very solitary pastime. And it creates this very uh, kind of frat system. These are two industries that 
by this time are heavily uh, nerdy dude focused. And it's just a it's hard for women to get to break into these industries. And not only does he succeed, like he followed his path, his his very lonely path. He succeeded wildly and he gets a lot of money and a lot of power. Uh, you know, Disney ends up acquiring Pixar and Lasseter ends up becoming the head of Disney animation. Pixar continues to succeed. His importance to the company grows and grows. And he becomes this kind of godhead figure with his uh, Hawaiian shirts, his like, you know, his, his kind of infectious energy. He is the Steve Jobs of Pixar, even though Pixar already had Steve Jobs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. And things start coming up. Uh, he gets a reputation for being huggy. He uh, drinks heavily at the office. He celebrates every, uh, you know, achievement with a shot of bourbon, with a shot of whiskey. And patterns start arising in his behavior. He starts acting strangely towards younger female employees. He starts like making comments about female employees' appearances. More complaints start arising that like, oh, hey, welcome to Pixar, the wonderland of dreams. By the way, stay away from John. (laughs) Uh, There's reports that like uh, female employees would be told not to attend meetings with Lasseter uh, by their managers because like it will create tension in the room when he inevitably makes a comment about their appearance. Uh, mm. There's a confirmed incident where he made out with a subordinate at a 2010 uh, rap party. Ugh. Like it's it's again, you know, when we talk about these kind of things, we have these grand supervillains uh, in mind. These like genuine, horrible, like uh, predator, predatory people. And even if you, like, have this caveat in your mind saying, like, oh, well, Lasseter wasn't that bad, he still, like, ruined careers. He still created a workplace where there was not equal grounding, where people could not function in a professional context, and it, ru- it ruined people's lives, specifically women's lives. Yeah. And it's – he had to – as more and more of these allegations came out, and especially in the wake of the Me Too movement – you like it couldn't be held secret anymore, and he took a six-month uh, recusal where he reflected on his past actions. I'm making a lot of air quotes, and <laughs> as as it kind of came to the surface, Disney knew that the line couldn't hold, and you know they couldn't deny that he made them a lot of money. This whimsical boy man made them a lot of money, and they couldn't like kick him out because he clearly you know he tapped into that energy. But that same energy is my is me talking also made him a poor uh, head of a multinational business, uh, especially in a world where we'd all like to walk around thinking that we've kind of solved these problems, that this isn't the world we live in anymore. But he was a glaring example of how we would let, how corporations kind of let this kind of behavior slide if the bank balance pans out right. Right. And um, like Toy Story is a great movie, but... I it's it has to be said. I know this isn't like goofy McGoof goof, but no, but we like going into this episode, we kind of started doing research and then re- sort of remembered after the fact, after we made the decision to do the research. Well, not that, only like, that, but even more reports came out. Right. So like uh, literally we the cannot week we decided deny this stuff. And uh, I definitely want to p- make light uh, point point, not make light of it, point a light on it, though, and yeah. definitely make sure that that's also part of this story, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's. If you honestly like if if you're the if you honestly are listening to this and being like what's the big deal like find a female friend you trust find a female family member and on, and like really try and like listen to what it's like to live in a world where things you can't control where things you 
like that you were told your entire life weren't a problem anymore all of a sudden you end up in a place where your boss is like all of a sudden well we're not even talking about i mean and 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 to add insult to injury this is probably for these people something they're greatly passionate about and putting a big damper on their childhood passions of wanting to be in animation wanting to do these things so it's very unfortunate and i'm very sad that that's part of the story as well um but we definitely don't want to deny it here at Wizbrew headquarters and sit here and just be like last year's so great oh he did so many great things you know what i'm saying so anyways that's why we wanted to uh at least throw that in there he will die in his mansion a happy millionaire <laughs> but and you know that's at least he was in. you know but the shame is there and i right. think that hopefully that that pushed through uh at all all right well anyways uh but besides that you know uh toy story uh is a huge explosive hit and sets off pixar to have the massive career that they end up having after that with so many titles it changes the begin. landscape of the movies for landscape of everything and honestly the landscape of disney because it probably if it weren't for pixar you wouldn't have disney acquiring star wars and doing things like that you know what i mean well it was literally like one of the i think i don't know if it was Iger specifically but a very high-powered executive at Disney, like, visited Disney World sometime in the early 2000s and saw that, like, the only characters that kids reacted to during, like, the big parade were Pixar characters. And he was like, oh, we fucked up. (laughs) We haven't, like, made anything of value that kids are resonating with. Yeah. So, and and, and they got frozen, though, after that. But anyways. Under Lasseter. Again, it's fucking. That's crazy, really? Yeah. Well, anyways, thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, Check us out on Patreon if you'd like to support us further. Five bucks a month, you get an episode of bonus content every single week. We're about to record some right now. Uh, You can check it out at patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and uh, also on the dorkly.com website Hell where yeah. I do things. <laughs> yeah, thanks everybody and have a good one. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.